Hey everyone, I'm Megan, and you are listening to Secrets in the Cornfield. Welcome back, and thank you all for your patience since the last episode. A little break was needed to handle some personal things. Those of you on the Facebook page have noticed a couple of news articles I posted regarding the recent murder of a young woman. She was found in her apartment, and the ex-boyfriend and father of her one-year-old son had fled. I was getting ready to provide a short episode, hoping to help in finding him, but as of earlier this week, he was found and captured in Mexico. So I am very thankful that he is off the street and the case may be one that I do as a bonus episode later on down the road. But for now, it's time to wait and let the justice system take over. As of now, I know that this episode is coming out a little late, so I just wanted to take a moment and wish all the mamas out there a belated happy Mother's Day. Whether you're a mom, stepmom, mother-in-law, fur mom, work mom, or someone who is like a mom to someone else. Hopefully your day was spent with loved ones. So that is all I have for today. Let's get started. In August of 1979, two brothers left their home in Davenport, Iowa to go play by a nearby river. But hours later, only one brother returned home. And by evening, when there was still no word from the other boy, he was reported missing. A grueling six-day search would result in every parent's worst nightmare. This is the abduction and murder of Roger Warren. Roger Herbert Warren was the middle child of Herbert and Joyce Warren, and they lived in Davenport, Iowa, which at the time was a decent-sized town with a population of close to 100,000 people. On August 19, 1979, Roger, who was 12 years old at the time, had taken his younger brother, 7-year-old Gary, out to play at a spot near the Mississippi River, not far from the family home, located at 216 Washington Street. The boys had been hanging out around the 1600 block of West River Drive, which was only about three blocks from their home. Later that afternoon, Gary returned home alone, and when Joyce had asked where Roger was, Gary told her a story that would be almost too terrifying to believe. Gary proceeded to tell his mother that while they were playing, a man had walked up to the two boys and offered Roger a 10-speed bicycle to go with him and that he would also take him to a baseball game. Gary said he was then told by both his brother and this man to go home. Gary stayed and watched as the man and his brother walked across a nearby bridge and out of sight before returning home. Gary's description of this man to police was that he was a white male in his 20s, short and thin with black hair and brown eyes, with several teeth missing. He was wearing blue jeans and a light blue shirt. Roger's parents waited and waited, trying to avoid panic and expecting their son to walk through their door. But when he didn't return home by 6.30 that night, Joyce called police to report Roger missing. Now, initially, Roger's disappearance was labeled as a missing person case 
However, all along, police said they couldn't rule out foul play. Roger was described as being a 12-year-old white male, 4 feet 6 inches tall, 90 pounds, with short brown hair. He was last seen wearing a yellow mesh shirt with Indy 500 printed on the front, blue jeans, and red and white tennis shoes. That evening, friends and family got together to look for Roger, and about 25 people combed the area by the river near the bridge where Roger had been last seen, and a two-hour search of the area by law enforcement yielded no additional clues. Searches continued daily, and then the first news article about Roger's disappearance was published three days after he vanished. The article included his description along with the description of the unknown man as provided by Gary. Certainly, the 1970s were a different time, but I would have suspected if a young boy would fall victim to a predator, I would have expected seven-year-old Gary to be more susceptible than Roger. Until I found that Roger was a sixth grade student who had been taking special education classes at Monroe School. Now, it was never specified, but certainly Roger's need for special education classes could have certainly been for some type of learning disability, but it could have also been due to some sort of mental or developmental impairment, which, regardless of its age, could explain why he agreed to go with a stranger in the first place. Or, on a more devastating level, He knew it was wrong, but he did what he did to protect his little brother. One of the key things that police focused on in the investigation was the bridge that Gary had described. They believed that the bridge Roger and the unknown man walked on was the Crescent Rail Bridge. Now, initially my mind went to some sort of small wooden bridge that crossed some kind of creek or small river, but that was far from it. Now, those of you who remember episode 10, the murders of Cody James and Gary Harker that I covered last year, described how Davenport, Iowa and Rock Island, Illinois are literally minutes from each other, and one of the ways of transportation between the two towns and across state lines was the Crescent Bridge. It was almost a half a mile long and crossed over the Mississippi River. The bridge was and still is to this day an operating swing bridge, which stays open for a substantial part of the day to allow for traffic along the river to pass through. When it's closed, there is a walkway that people frequently used to cross as they did back then as well. According to Bernie Webster, who was the general manager of the Milwaukee Railroad at the time, he confirmed that on August 19, 1979, the bridge was open for a substantial amount of the day, but there was a time where it was closed, and it could only be closed and opened from the Illinois side of the bridge. So, was the unknown man who took Roger with him from Davenport, or could it have been more likely that he was from Illinois, possibly Rock Island? What we do know is the boys were on the Iowa side of the bridge and the man likely took Roger across state lines to Illinois, which by today's standards would normally get the FBI involved, but it didn't seem to happen that way. The police focused all their search efforts on the banks of the river on the Iowa border, and if any searching was done in Illinois, it was never clearly reported. So I don't know if police felt that Gary's recollection of events were sketchy, but even the boy's mother, Joyce Warren, shared extreme concerns to the media as well as police about her son's absence, which should have raised more red flags from the beginning. According to Joyce Warren, she said, quote, he never disappeared before. Whenever he goes out, he calls me every couple of hours and he was scared of the dark, end quote. 
She immediately suspected foul play was involved, but the family was trying to keep their spirits up. By Thursday, August 23rd, people from throughout what was known as the Quad Cities area had called police with information or suggestions to help the case, but at that point, no leads had panned out. One of the people who helped in the search was 15-year-old Steve Cool, who was friends with Gary and Roger's older brother, Jerry, who was 13 at the time. The family said Steve helped in any way that he could. He waded through mud along the river near the bridge and searched along the riverfront to Credit Island. In their search on the 23rd, police found their first tangible clue, a pair of red and white tennis shoes which matched the description of the shoes Roger had been wearing that day and had been discovered by police near the Crescent Bridge in Iowa. Police showed the shoes to Joyce, who confirmed they were indeed Roger's. Several more days went by and no additional items of clothing or any other clues leading to Roger's whereabouts had been found until Saturday, August 25th. Six days after Roger vanished at around 1.30 p.m., some local firemen discovered the body of a young boy in the Mississippi River. It was 150 feet from Wapolo Avenue and about a mile downstream from the Crescent Bridge. The body was later confirmed to be 12-year-old Roger Herbert Warren. Joyce Warren was so distraught over finding her son's body that she had to be sedated. She would later speak to the media and said, quote, For a bike, he'd do anything. I've preached and preached and preached, but you can't change him. End quote. When Roger's body was pulled from the river, he was completely nude and had what appeared to be a rope wrapped around his neck. Scott County Medical Examiner Dr. R. M. Perkins conducted the autopsy and concluded the cause of Roger's death was strangulation. Dr. Perkins had been unable to determine when Roger died or how long he had been in the river due to the fact that his body had already been partially decomposed, but said he had likely been in the river for at least several days. The medical examiner was unable to determine if the boy had been sexually assaulted due to the condition of his body, but due to the nature of how his body was found, many speculated that Roger had been sexually assaulted, and even his dad, Herbert, speculated that the crime was sexual in nature. The rope around Roger's neck was wrapped once and was described as being a light-colored sash-type cord. But beyond that, the medical examiner was unable to determine any other injuries on his body. The community came together in a big way, helping the family in any way they could. Roger's burial plot had already been purchased by the family, but all funeral expenses were absorbed and funds were raised to help the Warren family with money to cover their bills while they grieved the tragic death of their son and brother. One individual who had previously lived in Davenport and had since moved away, along with law enforcement, put up a $1,500 reward, leading to the arrest and conviction of Roger's killer. The police warned the public of this unknown killer and said, quote, he is considered dangerous and might very well do the same thing again, end quote. But by this point, the police didn't have indicators that this man had been involved in any other cases. A few days later, on August 29th, four days after Roger was found, an interesting development comes to light in the homicide investigation. It was revealed that one of Roger's friends, 14-year-old Billy Bird, had been missing for three weeks. Apparently, Billy had left the foster home he was at on his 10-speed bicycle. 
Initially, the boy running away didn't concern authorities until after Roger's body had been found. But that's when police decided to give his case another look. Billy's father, Sherman Bird, couldn't help but wonder if the bicycle offered to Roger that fateful day was in fact his son's. But concerns weren't raised initially because Billy had a habit of running away. The day he took off, Billy was at the foster home of Mrs. Tracy Winslow, and he had ridden off on his orange 10-speed Schwinn bicycle with two pairs of pants along with two shirts. So there had been no doubt he had taken off on his own, but their worry was whether or not he was unable to return by the hands of somebody else. But thankfully, Billy was not met with foul play and was found a few weeks later and returned to Davenport, Iowa which sent investigators back to a different direction to try to find the person responsible for the murder of Roger. Now, in my opinion, one of the most shocking things about this case was something claimed by law enforcement. Keep in mind, this unsolved murder is going on 44 years in August without a single arrest, let alone conviction in the case. But less than a year after Roger was found, sometime in 1980, police felt they had known who was responsible all along. About nine months after finding Roger's body, police said they had grown increasingly frustrated with the case, and they made a shocking statement. They believed they knew who killed Roger, but because they lacked sufficient evidence and felt they didn't have enough for an arrest, they were unable to move forward. Lieutenant James Van Fossen, who was the head of the Nightside Detectives handling the case, said, quote, It makes you feel like your hands are tied. You reach a point where you're relatively certain you know who did it, but due to the laws of the land, you cannot arrest him, end quote. Van Fossen told reporters that police were keeping track of their suspect, who was a married man with children at the time and was still living in the area. Police have never revealed the suspect's name in the case, but this provides a few answers, at least to my questions, on why Roger would go with a stranger and leave his seven-year-old brother alone. Based on their investigation, the man they had their sights set on wasn't actually a stranger to Roger. Roger was an avid fisherman and spent a substantial amount of time by the river and near the Crescent Bridge. Apparently, this man did the same thing. He spent several occasions with Roger and befriending him, even going to the lengths of offering money to him in exchange for errands. So basically, the man was grooming him and showed he had money, so was it so absurd for Roger to think that he was safe with this man that he had spent time with before, and he in fact was going to get a bike and a chance to go to a baseball game with him? Sadly, I don't think so. After Mrs. Warren was made aware of the suspect by officials, she said, quote, The detectives told me the guy is in his 30s, and now every time a man that age looks at one of the kids, you wonder what he's looking at, end quote. When the police narrowed in on their suspect, they had requested that he take a polygraph test. The man immediately refused and hired a lawyer. From that point on, police had their sights set on him. They said that they had gathered information from a confidential informant regarding their suspect, and the informant claimed if they had checked his property, there was a high possibility that they would find Roger's Mesh Indy 500 t-shirt, which of course was still missing, and a piece of the sash-like cord matching the one around Roger's neck. At the time, their suspect owned two properties, 
so search warrants were issued for each location, but as I am sure those of you listening have guessed by now, nothing was found to further their case, including no sign of the shirt or the cord. As far as I am aware, based on the research materials, no sketch was ever completed of the suspect or even a photo lineup. But police went a step beyond that and attempted to hypnotize Gary, but that again led to another dead end. With nothing else to lose, police did something which is still controversial to this day, but in 1981 wasn't as frowned upon. Davenport police brought in a psychic to help with their investigation. A group of detectives sat in a conference room and made a long-distance call to a known psychic at the time, Greta Alexander, and gave her a brief summary regarding the unsolved homicide. During the phone call, Greta interrupted the detectives and said, quote, there's something here at my neck area, end quote. During the remainder of the call, which reporters said lasted about 90 minutes and were able to be in the room for, Greta Alexander never provided a name for a suspect in the case, but police said she gave some additional leads in hopes of moving the investigation forward. But of course, we don't know what those leads are and whether any of them provided any answers. Mrs. Alexander had apparently worked on many missing persons and homicide cases, and she was later called in to work on the disappearance of Johnny Gosh. As far as reports provide, that was the first and last time Davenport Police Department called on a psychic to help with the Roger Warren investigation. So things, of course, went quiet again in the case. And then, about two years later, the first suspect name began to circulate in the media, and that man was Richard M. Clark. Apparently, Richard Clark had been in and out of the Iowa Mental Health Institute located in Mount Pleasant, Iowa, going all the way back to 1969. In 1982, Clark had been arrested in the attempted abduction of a boy from Bettendorf, Iowa, and was reportedly showing some very bizarre behavior to police. Clark's charges for abduction were later dropped after he was admitted to Mount Pleasant again under the grounds that Clark was psychotic and unfit for trial. But at this point in 1983, Richard Clark had confessed to burying 14 bodies throughout the Midwest and had promised to provide police a map where those 14 bodies were buried. Clark ended up drawing a map which led to a body buried on Arsenal Island, who was later identified as James Churchill. So Clark then wrote a note to the FBI that he would let them know where the other 13 bodies were located. Police took this opportunity to see what Clark may have known regarding unsolved cases in the area, including Roger's murder, but Clark never confessed and backed out of finishing the map for detectives. From what I can tell, this man isn't the same man that police had as their first suspect in the case, and there's never a physical description provided if Clark matched the suspect description given by Gary. Several additional unsolved murders took place in the 1970s in the Quad Cities area, which may or may not be linked to Roger's murder. But as we know, nothing led to any arrests, and the other murders that they claimed were similar to Roger's, police had a different suspect in mind, and that suspect later had died. Roger's family, especially his mother Joyce, was so heartbroken by the loss that she spent years placing notes in their local paper, in which one from 1983 said, it's been four long, lonely years. On August 19, 1979, our beloved son, Roger Warren, went for an afternoon walk and met a stranger who promised him a 10-speed bike, which he didn't get. Roger, I know you have that bike now, for you're in heaven, where you're being protected from that stranger 
who still walks the face of the earth. Laid to rest August 28, 1979, your beloved family and friends. Roger's parents have both since passed away, and since we don't know the name of the suspect in the case, we don't know if he is still out there living his life almost 44 years later. What we do know is it is never too late for justice and answers, and someone always knows something. So if you have any information regarding the abduction or murder of Roger Warren, you are asked to contact the Davenport Police Department at 563 326 7979. Thank you for listening to Secrets in the Cornfield. Tune in in two weeks for a new episode. Sources for this episode can be found in the episode description. Secrets in the Cornfield is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, and Audible. You can follow on Facebook at Secrets in the Cornfield Podcast, and questions, comments, or suggestions can be sent to me by email at sitcpod at gmail.com. Please continue to share the show and episodes with family and friends in hopes of getting answers for the families and providing a voice for the victims.